0: Hi folks, I'm joined by YouTuber Apostolic Majesty, who I asked to have a discussion about why the British Empire lost confidence in itself because I've long wondered this. And it was the, the conversation was sparked by a video that he put up on his YouTube channel, which I will leave linked in the show notes for this in the description, wherever this goes, uh, that you'll be able to find and go and listen to for yourself. Because it's about an hour long, and it's quite a wide-ranging discussion uh, over a long period of time. And I thought, um, being a bit more of a layman on this subject, it'd be nice to get the man himself here so I could ask him some direct questions um, to help flesh out my knowledge and hope by proxy yours. So, um, apostolic majesty, AM I should call you, I guess. Uh, thank you for joining me and thanks uh, for taking the time to do this.
1: Yes. I think an abbreviation here would, uh, benefit you considerably rather than having to regurgitate <laughs> apostolic majesty several times during the stream, but thank you very much for having me on Carl. And, uh, I'm very flattered that, uh, you, you enjoyed this video and, uh, the whole structure of the video was a series of reflections, and I, I encourage these topics to be fleshed out all the more. So I was very uh, flattered and uh, excited to get your suggestion for the stream.
0: Wonderful. Right. So can I ask what uh, inspired the reflection in the first place?
1: Uh, yes, certainly. Um Regarding a lot of sort of the various accounts that I follow, um, other YouTubers such as Semiagog and uh, Academic Agent have um, brought to the fore this idea of what exactly is the relationship with the British Empire and the global American Empire. And essentially, what responsibility does the British Empire have for enabling uh, the American Empire? But because I I'm a historian of the 19th century, and I've become sort of more familiar with early modern subjects and even medieval subjects, just a historian just to <clears throat> about these sort of subjects as various uh, subjects pique their particular fancy. Uh, hmm. I decided to look at this from the beginning, this from the earliest point of inception of a British Empire, and try to conceive of this idea in the round, because... Um, it's something, unfortunately, I can't give a clear answer to. This mm. is part of a evolving series of reflections. And um, I believe that continued discussion revol- uh, revolving around the subject is much needed because there isn't any sort of satisfactory answer out there, as far as I'm concerned.
0: That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this discussion, actually, to hope, uh, push the uh, discourse forward. Um, so I think it's worth beginning where... Roughly, you began in the kind of ad hoc nature of the British Empire. Um, I I don't think uh, I don't think we need to go quite as far back as Henry II. Um, but I think the sort of era of the gentleman privateer is roughly where I would start placing the sort of formation of what would become the world spanning modern modern quote-unquote british empire and i i find this really interesting because it seems to me that the british empire kind of came about by accident Uh, whereas if if i were to compare it to say the roman empire there's obviously a lot more state policy involved in the conscious expansion of rome whereas for from my understanding it seems that the british state often finds itself saddled with new provinces it didn't quite expect is that a fair characterization
1: uh it is to some extent, um however, I almost believe that there are two British empires, two in tandem um Henry the second, weirdly enough is actually relevant here in terms of England expanding into the British Isles and then England with all the other nations of Great Britain expanding outwards into the rest of the world um so I do believe there is some sort of validity mm. here, uh, but I think you're Right in saying that the British Empire, the modern British Empire, I think one of these defining sort of moments in terms of the end of continental possessions and the birth of, you know a proto-British empire really begins with the uh, concession of Calais. To the mm-hmm. French, um, after which point, with the ascent of Elizabeth I, really the English Empire gets going as a uh, as a privateering exercise against the Spanish, uh, raiding the uh, treasure ships which are bringing vast amounts of gold and silver from the recently reconquered uh, conquered Mesoamerican empires, um, the Aztecs and the Incas. Um, so you can say that England began as a pariah. Uh, on the international stage given that most of the prominent monarchies and nations of Europe were Catholic, um, with the exception of countries in Scandinavia, for example, and Britain was aiding the Dutch Revolt against the Spanish Empire at the same time. Um, So yes, you can say that the British Empire arose out of opposition to the Spanish, as essentially a, uh, you can almost call it a a criminal organization, kind of like a rogue state, how you define it today, uh, operating against the Spanish, but ultimately the British would have the last laugh.
0: So I think that's um, important in the constitution of the British Empire, um, because when you have, in more ancient times, uh, a conscious state attempt to conquer other states and territories in order to deliberately subjugate foreign peoples and extract wealth from them, you end up with a much more self-conscious, uh, civilization that is undergirding that. So for example, the Persian empire was the empire of the Persian people and those subject nations that pay tribute to the King of Kings. Whereas in your video, you make a good point that it's quite a long way into the British Empire where Queen Victoria is called the Empress of India. And it's just the Empress of India. It's not the emperor of the British dominions or something like that. And I I think that's really interesting. And I was wondering if that had something to do with the strange constitution of the British Empire. What, What are your opinions on that?
1: Well, my there the are two sort of things to bring up regarding the strange constitution of England um, vis-a-vis something that never really became the British Empire in the sense of a Rome, which you've already alluded to. One, which is underlined with Magna Carta which is sort of strange when you consider it, that the Norman invasion is in many ways a conquest, not just of the Norman people, but it's also a uh, a conquest by the Catholic Church, the Gregorian reforms into, um, into England. So Magna Carta is an attempt to distill the privileges of the English ruling elite, the barons, vis-a-vis the monarch. But it is also an attempt to asserts some sort of English sovereignty against any sort of overarching imperial power. In this case, it was really against the papacy under Innocent III. And this is very much echoed when we look at the reforms of Henry VIII, creating, or rather you can say separating the Church of England um, from the Church in Rome, is that there is this reassertion that England is an empire Uh, in and of itself. So a core aspect here is sovereignty and independence and this idea of little England, hence giving rise to this idea of England as a pariah state. And the reason it can endure so long as a pariah state is due to its defensibility and the prowess of its navy, albeit the navy is a very much ad hoc institution at this time. But combined to this, this really sort of gets going in the 17th century, less so in the 16th century is the warring relationship between various local factions within England and later the broader empire against royal power. And something I emphasized in my reflections was that this was in part due to a consequence of the failure of the English Reformation, the failure to establish a single uniform, uh, royally constituted religion for the entirety of the british isles given the fact that the scottish dynasty of the stuarts would later come and attempt to adopt the english uh, religious settlement so all of these facets make england a very sort of particular entity on the fringes of europe none of this is conducive towards sort of good diplomatic relations with the rest rest of europe but as for your particular question coming back to this idea of why there was no formal creation of a British empire. I believe perhaps the closest thing you could have envisaged to arrive at that, if we're engaging in a bit of alternative history, is whether the British have won the American War of Independence. Hmm. In that sense, you can almost say that the king could then instigate a series of reforms over the English-speaking provinces and amalgamate them into, you can almost say, a direct Imperial administration. And I think the prospect of that to the American colonists represented a form of existential threat to the idea of the English liberty. And you can go back to the quote-unquote glorious revolution, in which you're seeing a conniving overreach of monarchical authority, which is aiming to attack the Protestant settlement in Britain. And of course, bring this further back to the English civil wars as well, where all of these arguments are running through the uh, the contentions of the parliamentarian factions, the uh, uh, those who send the letter inviting William of Orange to come and uh, seize the throne from James II, and those who decry George III as um, a, a tyrant unique in history and that we are asserting the... Uh, the rights of um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think all of these themes are consistent within British and, by extension, American history from the 17th century onwards. And thereby, you can look at all of these events as interlinked.
0: So, is it is it fair or... <clears throat> not to mischaracterize events, Um, say that the the rise of the British Empire probably wasn't expected by the people at the time as things went along until something like the 19th century when it became self-evident that after the defeat of Napoleon, Britain was the great power of Europe. And this meant that... It wasn't. Again, I I keep coming back to this idea that it wasn't really a conscious attempt to form an imperial dominion, because there's definitely a, a different. Like, I I I wonder about the terminological accuracy of calling the English and British settlements in the New World as imperial. Because imperial to me connotates one ethnic group dominating over others.
1: No, I, I agree with you. This this should be emphasised. When, when I mean when I mean imperial, yeah. it's rather yeah. difficult. When I, I use I try and um, compromise between very sort of specific usage of terms and terms that can be readily understood. When I characterise empire, I mean imperium. In the sense of Mm. the Roman word to command. So if we're looking at Imperium, I'm almost seeing this as the king assuming Imperium over his subjects in a new settlement, Mm. which looks back at the various um, conflicts that we see before. But you're right in the sense that Imperium does tend to denote lordship over one race. over the other. And this, of course, um, is evident in the Roman Empire when you have the primacy of the Latin peoples and the amalgamation of other imperial subjects as federati, uh, representing um, allies or those who Mm. entreat essentially with the Roman Empire. And in terms of this amalgamation of all these very disparate peoples, which ultimately was far more diverse than the Roman Empire, this is very much established by the 19th century. And something else I mentioned in my reflections is this idea that there were many British empires existing throughout the span of this entire sort of demarcation point in history. Mm. So the British Empire is a useful term, yet it's also an incredibly um, simplistic way of envisaging this whole scope of history
0: yeah it tends to um flatten things down and hide many of the details in my opinion and i'm I'm no great expert either i'm but i I am an enthusiastic student i try to be anyway Um, because it's it it's very clear to me that it the dominion status that the anglo colonies get as different to the other areas connotates that this is just kind of an expansion of a civilization rather than anything imperial um and so when confined to this sort of sphere it seems that there wouldn't be a reason for a loss of confidence but when you end up having to justify yourself as the in some ways racial overlords of vast areas of the east and africa it seems to me that things change somewhat and is it not in that sort of time period where like imperialism as an ideology become crystallized whereas before it's merely just england existing in the world and kind of expanding because it's naturally got the power to do so
1: i think this i might just give a very sort of brief overview of what empire sort of really meant around that time so we're talking the early modern period um Various states had an imperial uh, self perception. Uh, Spain would be an obvious example. Mm. Uh, Spanish nationalists, or rather Castilian nationalists, Castile being the largest kingdom within. Spain, um, believed that they were essentially the Western Roman Empire, expanding out into the uh, domains of the New World. However, they didn't think of themselves consciously as an empire, as in our ruler is an emperor, for the brief span that uh, Charles V was the emperor, and he also ruled over Spain. And this was because since Constantine, in Christendom, the idea of the emperor was that of a universal dominion over Christian subjects, which is why in orthodoxy, say, for example, the Byzantine emperor is an emperor, the Russian ruler is a czar, uh, the Holy Roman emperor is an emperor, Charlemagne assumed the title of emperor of the Romans. All of this has a specific, you can say, European and Christian connotation. Mm. So the idea of Henry VIII assuming an England as an empire onto itself is a rebellion against this idea. It's a rebellion against a... Universal sort of European civilization or some form of universal Christian kingship. Henry VIII has the ability to demarcate what Christianity is in a separate sense of Englishness within these domains. So the British Empire is an anti empire in the sense that it arises out of opposition to this idea of some sort of shared European ideology, and I use that word, you know, under sufferance, um, and greater civilization, in terms of, you mentioned this idea of the dominions being some sort of um, extension of, you know, an English or a British identity. I think this is a good time to also talk about what, what a colony is, because In terms of the English setting up colonies, spreading throughout the world and uh, creating dominions, not just in New Zealand, Australia, and Canada, uh, but also in what would later become the United States and the 13 colonies, you can almost say that they resemble the Greek colonies Mm. of the Mediterranean. Uh, And there is Hellas, there are the Hellens, but you have sub-races within that um, that grouping, such as the Dorians, Aeolians, Ionians. Um, So you can say that there is a shared ethnos, a connection between all of these territories, but it's very loose in the same way that you can say that the Greeks habitually went to war with each other, Mm. with the exception of the War of Independence is not that bad, obviously, between (laughs) the English colonies up until that point. Uh, But I think in terms of looking to some sort of precedent, Where you have a mother country in the form of Hellas, and then you have this outcrop of various sort of colonies, you know, expanding as far as uh, you know the the far east. In the case of the um, Greeks in India or in Basila, which is modern day Marseille, you have this weak connection, but the strong ethnic connection, and indeed. With the Colonia, you also see this replication of the culture in the mother country as well. And I think this is a good way to almost examine the first British Empire that comes about this. And in terms of Britain as as representing a plurality of races, not just the English, but also representing the Irish, the Scottish and the Welsh, um, this conception of an English Empire becoming a British Empire becomes very apparent after 1707, where you have the Act of Union. And by the 1730s, people are beginning to conceive of themselves as a British Empire. But such a definition allows for all of these distinct groupings within a large umbrella which is this shared notion of a British empire. But as I, I've mentioned with um, the conceptions of the early modern idea of empire and England as representing an anti-empire, this notion of a British empire is in some senses, similar to Spain in that we are expanding all across the new world. Yet at the same time, it is an empire which is emphasising sovereignty, sovereignty of the English people and sovereignty Mm -hmm. of the English constitution against that of any uh, potential European oppressor.
0: Yes, because in the early stages of the empire, one thing that I find interesting is how little it seems to be ruling over foreign peoples. Uh, Does that make sense? Like, Like the 13 colonies, the settlement in Canada... There seems to be no desire for the administration of foreigners. And it's only after the American Revolution, when we start leaning heavily towards the East and towards Africa, that seems to become an issue. Am I correct in that?
1: Uh, with one major exception, of course, which is the transatlantic slave trade. I thought you were going to say um, Irish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry yes you are you are correct there of course
1: <laughs> no no I, I i i i think you're completely right there i i should i shouldn't i shouldn't have forgotten the irish i am part irish so i can't believe that i forgot about the irish but yes indeed indeed the the 12th century uh oppression of the irish and yeah. the uh 700 years since but yes um within the british isles I mean, you could also bring up brave and things like that I regarding suppose, yeah. the scottish and uh and freedom but in terms of something um well actually they go hand in hand the conquest of the Irish and the expansion of um, Britain across the west coast of Africa into places like the Ontropods and the Gambia and expanding that out. Um, the British aren't obviously the first to conceive of the internet of the uh, Atlantic transatlantic slave trade. Uh, the Portuguese the first to do this. The, the Spanish are also the first to do this. The Dutch participate in it. And virtually every European power that has possessions in the Caribbean does this as well. But as various colonizers are coming from Scotland and they become the Ulster plantationists and they form you can say the nucleus of what now what is now northern ireland hmm. uh, so too are the british colonies in the caribbean uh, and the expansive sort of trade in tobacco and sugar are dependent on this uh, uh, body of slaves which is being imported from um, uh, from africa and um, this is actually the direct legacy of Cromwell in terms of the massive expansion into the Caribbean. It wasn't enough for the British simply to raid the Spanish treasure ships. Uh, During Cromwell's um, stint as Lord Protector of uh, uh, the British Isles, um, he begins the expansionary process into the Caribbean and of course, we also have significant numbers of uh, black slaves in the southern states of America, probably Virginia as well. So it's not necessarily accurate to say that there is an absence, not, not accurate to say there is an absence mm-hmm. of um, foreign peoples under a dominion. But it is fair to say that there is a majority of an essentially a English-Scottish ethnicity uh, which is ruling over these various territories. Um, and with the exception of some provinces in the Caribbean, all of them, up until the late 18th century, had some direct connection with the mother country, mm-hmm. some sort of shared feeling of ethnos. And <clears throat> this is why I believe that um, it was something the British were ultimately able to weather but why the American War of Independence represents this first major crisis of confidence. And I do believe it was an existential crisis as proven by what will happen over the next 200 years.
0: Yeah, what what I meant there was, um, you know, there's no foreign peoples with an ethnic sense of themselves that the British are ruling over discreetly. Um, obviously, you know, Africans taken from Africa lose their tribal connections, and so they just become blacks in the new world context um but it's not the same as the spanish ruling over the inca or something like that you know um but yeah well, so- i mean
1: i i don't want to go too long on, on oh, that no. sort of tension you bring up uh, but i think there are two uh, two things i can point to one is obviously ireland hmm. ireland which had a very clear yeah. conception of itself um vis-a-vis the english all the way up until the late up until the battle of the boyne really and beyond that yeah. um and another point to mention before we get to um the battle of uh, before we get to the, the, the turning east of the british empire towards india um during that time britain also annexes uh new france it annexes quebec and it's a wonder in a way that Britain was able to successfully hold on to French-speaking colonies rather than their own uh, 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 co-ethnos.
0: Very briefly, why do you think that is?
1: Uh I think it partly due to the fact I, again, I haven't really looked into this subject in much depth. Um, but I think it's partly because a Canadian identity was formed in opposition to dominion by the United States. <laughs> if if that if that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, that and, does, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> the Americans saved Canada for us, I see. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. So it seems to me that the analogy with the Hellenic colonization of Mediterranean and wherever else. Pretty apt, because there seems to be even to this day an understanding that they are kind of like us uh in d- in despite of the fact that they're thousands of miles away and hundreds of years of history separate us, especially when dealing with the Americans um they're always still very sympathetic, and it didn't take long after the revolutionary War for them to turn on the French um which I find very amusing, so then there must be something to that. And so it strikes me that the English-speaking colonies around the world would only have strengthened British confidence. So moving into the 19th century, and say in the first quarter or so we defeat Napoleon, Britain must have been presumably at its zenith in terms of confidence, if not in terms of territorial extent at that point. Um, Could you pick the story up there?
1: Uh, I, I would actually uh, just push back against that oh, slightly yeah. in terms of a zenith of confidence. I think um, the period from 1783, uh, really up until the the death of um, of Pitt the Younger, really represents a weathering of a long of a protracted crisis uh, within the the whole sort of British identity regarding the loss of the colonies. Mm. Um, l- like I said, I think the fall of the 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 loss of the American colonies to the British empire. It represents a disputation over the nature of the English constitution. Um, in terms of this idea of colonists sort of rebelling against a monarch, this has happened before. The most prominent example in recent memory at that point is when the Dutch rebelled against Philip II, who was also king of Spain. But within that um, conflict, it's pretty obvious that the Dutch were looking to ancient precedents of their own self-governance, and they they believed they were being ruled over by a foreigner. Hmm. So what makes the American example really quite um, interesting by comparison to the Dutch example is the fact that these were co-ethnics rebelling against the English king, who could in many ways be seen as an ethnarch. Um, a -hmm. patriarch of the various um, English sort of outcrops existing throughout the world. And in order to sort of justify this, the American colonists have to look at the English king as representing some form of foreign domination, even within the context of Britain. So... In 1714, the Hanoverians are essentially brought over as part of the, uh, the Act of Settlement to rule over Britain. Many Protestants are happy with this and many Whigs are happy with this because it means continuation of weak royal government. Mm. It doesn't matter that the, uh, uh, the, the King of England is now a, uh, a German who's more interested in his possession in Hanover than he is really in the welfare of Great Britain. Um, this changes with George III. George III is the first Hanoverian monarch to really take an active interest in terms of exerting personal rule over his territories, where George II and George I were essentially happy to let prominent Whig figures such as Robert Walpole do the day-to-day administration of government for them. So in order to combine this whole sort of conflict of confidence with George III attempting to almost look back to the examples of James II and Charles I, uh, both very unfortunate monarchs and assume a more personal rule and um, management in day-to-day government, the Americans have to re-emphasize the fact that he is from a foreign dynasty. And it's very handy for them because who are the fighters that the king brings over to combat Hessians. the revolutionaries? Hessians, Hanoverians, mm-hmm. various German mercenary corps, um, which there are in abundance of in the late 18th century, uh, who can be very who are very readily available and willing to serve the Hanoverian monarch. But in addition to that, the Hanoverian monarch is allied with various native tribes as well um, in the Appalachian region, who are preventing the American colonists from expanding outwards into the west, and so. In order to sort of bring this parallel with the Dutch, the Americans have to turn the King of England into another. They have to almost present him as renouncing mm. uh, his uh, his duty to protect his own sort of um ethnic subjects by bringing in these foreign elements which are opposing them in this struggle. um and so, I find that terribly fascinating in terms of presenting the King of England as another and representing this as a form of ethnic betrayal, because it breaks apart this sort of aspect of the colonies. And I think it it does throughout the remaining centuries. It imprints this idea of a crisis of confidence. You can say it impugns the whole idea of leadership, not just by uh, the King of England, but by Britain in general, which is only going to exacerbate going forward. So this is the climate in which Britain loses the American War of Independence. To make things worse, the French are Mm -hmm. supporting the Americans in this conflict. And so Britain had emerged 20 years earlier as a world superpower. And 20 years later, it looks as if all of these things are going to unravel quickly. And so Britain finds new purpose can say almost a new zeal um, in terms of being able to redefine empire in its conflict with revolutionary France and conflict with Napoleon. Despite having been essentially a liberal constitution, uh, a parliamentary system, albeit officiated by a monarch, all of a sudden, William Pitt is seen essentially as the the man standing against the the unfettered expansion of Jacobinism. And this is complement with the philosophy of Burkeanism, etc., etc. Mm. So, it is in the struggle against France that we see a new series of new political movements that are coming out of um, uh, very sort of uh, dormant parts of the British political caste. Um, but on the one hand, they're riling against Jacobinism, yet they're innovating in many other ways, such as with the abolition of slavery. Um, and this later becomes a core aspect of Britain's imperial mission going forward. And the final confirmation of this confidence, of course, is with Wellington's victories over the French in Spain and his definitive victory against Napoleon at Waterloo.
0: It's a very interesting characterization because <clears throat> this, this re renders the American Revolution in a way that actually is quite difficult for me to pick apart. Because usually the American Revolution is, of course, framed in deeply ideological terms. But if Nietzsche is right and he says that all of philosophy is confession, then it does lend strength to the argument that actually it seems that the American Revolution was more an ethnic revolt that was masked after the fact, almost, by the revolutionary rhetoric rather than being merely, oh, well, we've come to very rational conclusions about governance and things like this, and therefore revolt. Um, Very interesting. And it's hard to refute, because you are right, it is premised very strongly on the rights of Englishmen, isn't it?
1: And of course, this isn't the first time. There were very, there were previous efforts at trying to reform the colonies, um attempting to amalgamate them, thereby removing the distinct character of the individual colonies. And this is very prominent at the end of the seventeenth century, the transition period between um, the restoration. And the Glorious Revolution, and these arguments are brought up again: the rights of Englishmen. But this is not to say that there were the philosophical arguments have no place here. But I'm very cynical about these things. Um, regarding, say for example, the Dutch Revolt, where the Dutch rebel against the Spanish, um, the Dutch essentially have a mold of government already there due to their you know ancient medieval history which they're able to sort of bring together these various almost anachronistic forces between popular government and rule of the nobility in order to create the Dutch Republic. With America, this isn't something typical to the Americans. This is also something the French would do, albeit they would have a different take on it. The Americans have asserted their rights, the rights of the ancient English constitution. They are othering the British monarch. Mm. And yet, they're obviously indebted to the ideas of the British constitution, yet they tend to redefine them in terms of Roman, essentially a revival of neoclassicism. Mm. So instead of recreating the House of Lords, they're creating the Senate. Uh, George Washington is basically recast in the figure of a Cincinnatus, someone who is a uh, coming out of obscurity from his plantation to uh, Mm. fight for the rights of Americans and this new American identity. Because I do believe that an American identity, a consciousness, only really arises a decade or so after the American War of Independence rather rather than prior. Um, And you can say this is the logical extension of them conceiving their rights as Englishmen, and then as a consequence of having severed, now we need to create something different, albeit it is modeled on the precedent that's already been set, uh, woven into these newly imported ideas about uh, classical forms of government, a Republican, and to a lesser extent, Athenian systems.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that does definitely fascinate me. But right, okay, so there's a crisis of conscience before the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and um, but after this, it seems that Britain holds the whip hand um, in not just European but basically world politics, right? Um, Britain's free to expand pretty much everywhere, and does, doesn't it?
1: Yes, um, there are many things that uh, set this up. There is a there is a very brief period, uh, which is during the um, the tenure of Castlereagh which is the Congress of Vienna period, where Britain is committed to upholding the status quo of Europe. But upon his suicide, when George Canning comes in, that radically changes in terms of reorientating Britain towards this emphasis on maritime power and almost leaving Europe alone as a consideration. often the idea of splendid isolation is confined to the latter part of the 19th century, but I very much view it as a consistent theme, really, from 1822 all the way up until 1914, which almost represents uh, Britain's golden century of empire. It doesn't necessarily hold the whip hand in Europe in terms of military might, because Britain is not a continental um, military power, uh, but it is the it is the master of international finance. It's the, the main maritime empire. There is nothing that even comes close. It is primarily a commercial empire. And if anything, this is a point which I need to emphasize about the American objection to Hessian mercenaries being brought in, is this idea that Britain does not have a standing army. Mm. Um, Britain does not maintain its empire by land force. Rather, Britain is a series of removed territories that are linked together and protected by the Royal Navy. Um, And it's this idea of commerce, and it's this idea of protection from the Navy rather than direct oppression, I think, which defines Mm. Britain in, you you can say, almost favourable terms compared to other empires at this time. Um, But this whole conception is redoubled Uh, with the ascent of George Canning at the beginning of the 19th century. And -hmm. of course, this is also made easy by the fact that in the preceding century, um, many of the other European contenders had either declined or been outright sort of defeated by the British. So the French, obviously, they lose Canada and they also lose significant possessions in India during the middle of the 18th century. Mm. Um, The Spanish Empire unravels um, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, partly because of the influence of the United States, but more prominently because Napoleon invades the peninsula in 1908, 1909, and Spain is unable, and also with Trafalgar, the Spanish fleet is destroyed. So Spain is unable to effectively even communicate with its colonies, let alone try and conquer them, even Mm. though it takes 20 years essentially for these territories to unravel. Um, At the same time, Britain's imperial predecessor in terms of representing a naval commercial Protestant empire, the Dutch um, have basically surrendered their empire and their dominance to the Brit to the British. And this is actually a very late um, process, much later than you'd imagine. Amsterdam is still very much the banking capital of Europe up until the late eighteenth century. It's only with the wars of the French Revolution, whereby when the Netherlands is occupied, uh, do the Dutch really fall through the floor in terms of their international influence in London because the undisputed center of international finance and commerce. And to make it worse for the Dutch, the Dutch have ceded territories to Britain for their quote unquote protection when in reality this meant permanent secession. Mm. And the most obvious example in this case is the Cape Colony. Um, so Britain has already essentially defeated, many of its maritime rivals, and when we look at things like the Monroe Doctrine, which ostensibly comes from the United States, well, George Canning is the one to enforce it. Why? Because all of these Spanish colonies have now become independent, and now they're going to become economically dependent on the British Empire. Um, So the unravelling of the European empires has taken a direct role in terms of this new British self-confidence that's coming out in this period. Uh, that's just by way of an introduction.
0: Hmm. So <clears throat> it's fair to say, then, Britain's self-confidence rises during the 19th century. Um, and surely it must be the entry into World War One that, that there must be something around this sort of time. And I think, I assume it's presumably something like the nature of warfare has changed because of industrial developments that must surely shake Britain's confidence. Because one of the things that always plays in the back of my mind is Britain has no hope of having a long-term, like proper empire because of its frankly, lack of land power, in my opinion. And so, because Britain's never been very comfortable with fielding large armies, it seems, especially not on the scale of anything that we saw in the French Revolution. So it seems that 100 years after that, if millions of men are marching across Europe, what could Britain possibly do, really?
1: I want to to bring up this land power and actually refer back to the United States because if Britain was ever going to have a a steady source of manpower, it mm. was through the complete colonization of North America. Mm. And had Britain been able to maintain a good relationship with its colonies, in which there was a system of mutual defense baked into this idea, then I. I I believe that the whole idea of manpower could have been offset that and had the Americas retained their distinctly English character, Mm. uh, which of course is eroded significantly when we have mass migration from Europe in the course of the 19th century. Um, But I think uh, I would like to, if possible, uh, Carl, I'd like to put this idea of World War I on hold because I, I do want to emphasize that the 19th century is not just period of confidence so much as it's a period of radical change and radical Mm -hmm. change regarding self-perception of empire. So I've already tried to explain the best way I can that Britain is moving on from being an ethnic empire um, and now it is becoming something else. It has become orientalized. Mm -hmm. And the most prominent example in this, of course, is India. Um, At the same time, Britain is losing confidence in the ancient institutions which have defined it since Henry VIII's original sort of self identification as England as an empire in and of itself, the two cornerstones being the reformed religion and the monarchy. In the beginning of the 19th century, both of these things essentially become nothing more than window dressing for the whole sort of mission of the British Empire. In 1828, 1829, we have the Catholic Relief Act, which basically makes a nonsense of the whole idea of the king as maintaining the reformed faith within England. And the Catholic Relief Act is simply going to pave the way towards further concessions, which in my mind sort of ends with 1888, and Charles Bradlaugh being able to affirm his loyalty because he's an atheist, rather than swearing an oath to God, and thereby, by extension, the king, as maintaining the proper religion of England within the imperial possession. So I think that's a key thing to emphasize. The other being, of course, the 1832 Great Reform Act. As a consequence of the 1832 Great Reform Act, we are moving away from royally appointed governments and we are becoming a parliamentary state. Britain is becoming a, uh, a parliamentary state in the sense that even though we don't have mass emancipation in the early half of the 19th century, all governments, there is the understanding, have to be drawn from parliament. And this is very much settled um, with the ascent of Queen Victoria. And in terms of imperial self identification, this comes to the idea of Whig history and the triumph of Republican and later Democratic institutions. The idea that the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, All of these things were paving the way towards our advance, our our progress towards our advanced um, parliamentary democracy that we arrive at in the 19th century. Indeed, if you actually look at the arguments of the opponents, um, there's this ridiculous term, which is bandied about in the 1820s and 1830s, uh, typically by historians who want to um, denigrate this period of history, the idea of an ultra-Tory. When the ultra Tories would basically go and say that all we're trying to do is defend uh, the letter of the settlement created by the Glorious Revolution, that being the defence of the reform religion, um, so all of these elements are to some extent progressive. They're all sort of buying into this idea that Britain must become more democratic, must be more egalitarian, and who is responsible for the next Great Reform Act, it is Benjamin Disraeli, who would later become the leader of the Conservative Party. And it's because there is essentially this idea that Britain must rely on contingents from below to be able to participate in government uh, in a way which is slowly being adopted by other states of Europe. I don't really want to get into France because it's far too complicated, Mm. but this idea of the triumph of parliamentarianism is Mm. ebbing away at the various monarchies in Europe. The only monarchy which is able to resolutely stand firm against this until the 20th century is, of course, Russia. But how does this really connect with the British Empire? Well, there is now emerging a huge series of contradictions, internal inconsistencies within the management of the British Empire. As per the legacy of the American War of Independence, states like Canada and later Australia are beginning to have autonomy conferred upon them, um, as opposed to what happened immediately before the American Revolution, where um, the British government under Lord North and King George was trying to make the colonies economical for the United Kingdom. Now there seems to be some sort of understanding by the 1860s onwards that this isn't going to work, that we need to confer more rights upon our colonies, and not vice versa. Yet at the same time, look at India. India is essentially being modeled on that of the British as new Mughal emperors. Uh, we are ruling essentially by some form of uh, divine right or right of conquest, and we are bringing. All the local, all the upper strata within India, the various maharaja states, into essentially obedience or alliance with the British Crown, and other states, say for example, states in sub-Saharan Africa and others, are going to be administered directly. Uh, in some cases, by British governors. Um, in other instances, say for example, we have the British. Essentially occupying countries and using various rulers as puppets. Um, Egypt is a very good example of this. In other senses, like with China, we have the British opening the door for China to become part of the system of international trade with the Opium Wars. And then Britain takes on the responsibility of being able to manage the Chinese economy. And as with other states in South America, like Argentina or the Ottoman Empire, Britain is holding this empire together through a state of essentially economic um, indenturedness. And yet, in Britain, yet in um, in India, we're holding this together by appealing to the imperial legacy of the Moguls. And yet, in Britain itself, we're looking to the idea of essentially the um, the emancipation of the of the British worker and their active participation in the affairs of government. And this idea of benevolent paternalism, which is adopted by Disraeli. All of these things are being used at the same time. And this is why I find the British Empire such a unique institution, because the British Empire does not have a consistent ruling ideology. It looks at the various sort of peripheral regions within the empire, and based on their ethnic and historical character, it tempers its response. So India, of course, is the most obvious case, but in the white settler colonies, there is a different response to this as well. So, inevitably, in my view, there has to be some reckoning of these various forces. And as soon as educated um, cosmopolitan elites from these various colonies, especially in India go to London, they receive an education, they come back. Often it's actually with the acquiescence of various um, Englishmen who come over here, hence the creation of things like the Indian National Congress, whereby... An elite is structured within these colonies who begin to think of themselves and want to identify with the rights of Englishmen and create parallel institutions based on the Westminster system of government. And yet they are prevented from doing so because of the whole nature of Britain simultaneously adopting a parliamentarian form of rule and yet denying that upon the subjugated races um so like i said very apparent by the 19th century that there is um a system uh, you can say a a very obvious and burgeoning series of internal inconsistencies
0: yeah this this is um kind of the meat of what i wanted to talk to you about is the the changing philosophy of i suppose europe in general but britain specifically because as as you pointed out you have increasingly egalitarian ideals being introduced into the united kingdom Um, not introduced necessarily i mean i'm sure a lot of them came from the united kingdom Um, but you have an empire that predates these egalitarian ideals and so finds itself trapped in being the ethnic hegemon over various, uh, vast swathes of the globe, <clears throat> but unable to assert the ethnic particularities in the privileges that say the Americans were fighting for. Um, because the rights of Englishmen are pretty clearly defined as to where the boundaries of those rights extend to, as be to Englishmen, uh, people with English inheritance or British inheritance specifically. Um, but when you, but the, <clears throat> the 19th century seems to introduce a series of ideologies that erase those boundaries. And so Britain seems to be in an untenable philosophical position where it, it can either try and roll back the tide of modern thought or admit that it is somehow in the wrong.
1: I want to bring this back to your, your comment very early on regarding the Persians, mm. because the Persians ruled a what was then almost considered a universal empire and they were able to administer that empire based on a system of local rulers or satrapies, which owed allegiance to the Achaemenid kings of kings in Babylonia and in Persia proper. One possible way of being able to counteract all of these internal inconsistencies is to emphasize the idea of British subjecthood. Hmm. That, regardless of what your ethnicity is, all of these possessions, the peoples of India, say, for example, are subjects of the king, emperor. And in that way, re emphasizing the institution of monarchy could be a way of being able to counteract that in the sense that Britain is exercising imperium. Again, Mm. in the Roman sense, and everyone is subject to the emperor. Uh, Yet at the same time, this idea doesn't really, this idea is only, in my mind, very superficial. It's never able to inculcate into a, a consolidated ideology because, of course, what's happening in Britain, the whole previous two centuries of British history have been the ebbing and decline. A British royal authority until it becomes nothing more than an ornament, a shibboleth, really. Mm. And this is very apparent by the reign of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is more presidential than the presidents of the United States. She presides over the empire. She is the figurehead. She is the symbol. But in ter- and in that sense, someone like Queen Victoria could be a rallying figure. But beyond that, all of these different possessions have incredibly different, significantly um, differentiated relationships to the motherland and their own sort of conceptions of what it means to be a subject of the empire. So in that sense, Britain is very distinct from, say, something like the Archimedean Empire. Another thing you can draw on is, of course, religion. Religion, of course, being the most obvious source of one's outlook on the world, an obvious way of being able to unite people together if one's going to look at this purely in terms of practical power politics. But like I've drawn attention to, Britain's empire is bizarre in the sense that it comes out of a failure of the English Reformation settlement. The English Reformation is unable to create a consolidated religion under the king, and is unable to purge various sort of Catholic elements, especially within Ireland. And another thing I need to draw attention to with the American uh, Wars of Independence is that it is the religious essentially, dominion of the king, which is another reason behind the American revolt and their desire essentially, to create an atmosphere of tolerance, which is represented by the, the separation of church and state. So, without a religion, Britain also has to simultaneously protect Hindus. It has to protect Muslims. Mm-hmm. It has to rally all these different ideological groups, which are mutually incompatible to the cause of monarchy and subjecthood within the empire
0: and that that has been done in previous eras but it's always been under a very clear flag of ethnic dominion and it seems to me that at the end of the 19th century the turn of the 20th century ideology has taken over and i mean i i don't want to just lay the blame at the feet of liberalism but <laughs> It seems that liberal ideology pervades a lot of thought in this era, and I and in previous eras as well. But when it it is now framed as the rights of man, I saw a I saw a Palestinian uh, before the settlement of Israel talking about the pro- a video from I think it was 1930 talking about the proposed settlement of Israel, and he's talking about the rights of the Palestinians in the context of what has been granted by the British in a kind of ideological way. he's He doesn't say it's the rights of Englishmen, but that's the framework in which he's appealing to, because that's the framework the British have presented. And these become universal rights. And so when you have a universalized but abstract view on what rights are, suddenly the entire British empire, and we're we're seeing this with the decolonized movement now, becomes invalid and the people running it also feel it is invalid, right?
1: Well, yes, absolutely. I think there's there's much merit in your thought because the whole aspect of nationalism, self-determination within those ethnic groups, uh, goes hand in hand with the advance of democracy.
0: Hmm.
1: Once there is a cogent conception of what a demos is, what the people are, you add that then to the idea of natus, nation, as in where we come from, of what people we are, these two forces coincide. If you have an empire where the center is propagating this ideology of democracy and rule of the people, and then these ideas are disseminated throughout the rest of the empire, you create an absolute contradiction. Mm. And The only way to resolve that issue is either to create some sort of horrific world government amalgamation of all of these forces. Um, or, <laughs> which we're seeing now. Which, which, which we're seeing now. Or to basically say, no, we have one rule for thee, and one rule for, one rule for me, mm. and we are going to hold this empire together by military force. Or push back on the whole idea of democracy and have the king and a group of technocrats rule over everything. Mm. And of course those those latter propositions weren't really possible. And indeed when you look at things like Catholic emancipation and the Great Reform Act this is this represents a huge fear by the British ruling elite especially with Catholic emancipation that they're going to be overthrown within the various provinces they run. So invariably they temper their rule based on the local cultures in which they um, they they encounter within these territories. And another consistent thing which I really need to bring up, which is compatible with this idea of Britain being an empire of, empire of commerce, um, an empire of international finance, a maritime empire, it is not conducive for the whole British imperial mentality to impose empire on their subjects. They want to invite. People into Mm. the British Empire. And that way, the British can exploit and trade with these various territories. And by extending into places informally, like China, they are basically creating a whole nation of consumers at the same time. Mm. So, this has to be a consistent trend with the British that, in some cases, you can say it's vampiric. Whenever there is a government which is sufficiently powerful whereby they can actually run their own affairs and they can control their own citizenry, the British will attempt a conquest by stealth. When such a government does not exist, where there cannot be formal trading relations established, the British take over directly. In other cases, another key factor motivating Britain's expansion is the, period of sec- of the second period of imperialism, new imperialism, which is a common historiographical term being thrown around, whereby France and other countries in Europe are beginning to carve out spheres of influence in Africa. The reason why Britain was able to establish a hegemony over India was by kicking the French out and eliminating the influence of actors like the Portuguese and the Dutch within Africa too. The Scramble of Africa was less motivated by this um, absolute sort of racist desire to subjugate the sub-Saharan populations, rather than there was a consequence of all these powers rushing to assume control over the same set of resources. We need to demarcate these clear spheres of influence, so there aren't going to be wars as a consequence of this. And invariably, throughout the whole course of the 19th century, which builds into British self-confidence, Britain wins these various contests with foreign powers. Take France, for example. France is able to take over some, you know, relatively sort of economically viable territory, such as Senegal, which is nothing compared to Nigeria. Hmm. And it is able to control the Sahara Desert. Well, you know, big whoop. <laughs> um, where, where, whereas Britain...
0: <laughs> We've got 5,000 miles of sand. What do you want?
1: Yes. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Britain... Uh controls uh, North and South Rhodesia, uh, which- The, fertile, has, heartlands uh, the far, fertile heartlands of Africa. The fertile heartlands of Africa, Kenya, which is also another fertile region. It controls uh, Egypt, which of course is the mm. imperial artery uh, linking Britain's possessions in the Mediterranean uh, to the home country to uh the provinces in the Far East, and again, this is about excluding the French. Despite the fact that the French are responsible for building the Suez Canal, the British are the ones to dominate it and occupy um, occupy Egypt. And what do we do to prevent, you know, more conflicts spanning throughout this uh, whole series of um, annexations, which has been preferential towards the British uh, will give Congo this completely sort of um, jungle ridden state in the middle in order to create um, a buffer between these various different zones. Um, So that is, as you can see, there is very little in terms of direct ideology which is perpetuating this expansion. It is very much driven by, ironically, concerns to avoid conflict, avoid mm. conflict in Europe, whilst also expanding economically.
0: And it, what one thing I found really interesting is the way you describe Britain as... <clears throat> coming to settlements with various peoples around the globe that are different uh, in very much the same sort of practical way the persians did in fact um it wasn't it it, it's it was just sensible to do so at the time doubtless for the people involved and again that speaks to a lack of intent when it comes to the british empire doesn't it like we'll just do whatever works because as you say it's primarily a commercial empire and so really that's the main focus so this this is where i wonder about the insecurity of the british empire because if i'm playing a video game like total war i would feel that the british empire was always in a precarious position despite its successes because it never properly subdues any of the major land powers that would threatened to take over europe and it can never keep them down fully and it can never match them either despite the size of the empire and the wealth it has so from my very lay perspective it always looks like there is an insecurity that underpins it
1: Absolutely, there is an insecurity that underpins it, because Britain is not a land power, Britain is a naval power, and it's operating out of so many uh, different strategic spheres. The irony, of course, throughout all of this conversation is that if there is one major European power that the British are able to effectively subdue, it's the French. Right. Um when the French create their quote-unquote second colonial empire, it is very much done under the shadow of the British. Hmm. Uh, And you can almost say that that's the only way that France could have created a second colonial empire. And... Ironically, there's actually a more consistent um, ideology to the French Empire than the ones to British. There's very much this crusading zeal uh, mm. with Napoleon III, who will never go directly against the interests of the British Empire during this whole period. Um, but of course, when we arrive at the Entente Cordiale, the French have basically accepted this position that it makes far more sense to rely on the British for economic and military aid, given the fact that we are eclipsed in terms of european power politics by the growing power of germany mm-hmm. um but yes you're completely right when it comes to other land powers russia being the consistent threat not just militarily to britain but ideologically as well representing a total antithesis in the form of um fidelity to the tsar and unity under the orthodox faith whereas i've said you know Britain throughout the 19th century is an unravelling of Henry VIII's settlement upon similar lines. Because Russia can threaten Britain in the Far East, Russia can threaten Britain within Europe, it can threaten Britain in the Mediterranean, and it can threaten Britain against India. And I would say this actually speaks, I really want to emphasize this, to the diplomatic brilliance of Britain in the latter half of the nineteenth century in terms of being able to defeat Russia on all of these fronts. Mm. so the Crimean War, very obvious example, where Britain and France are actually directly engaged in a conflict against Russia. Russia's fleet is essentially annihilated. Militarily, it's defeated in the Ottoman Empire, but even worse, Russia is militarily defeated on its own soil in the Crimea. Not only does this represent a massive loss of <coughs> prestige for the Russian Empire, but it allows Britain to basically take over the Ottoman Empire by proxy, thus confirming their mm-hmm. empire in the Mediterranean. When the Russians attempt to reverse this, when they create the state of Bulgaria, um this is uh, Disraeli's uh, great triumph, where he faces down the Russians and the Congress of Berlin and prevents Bulgaria having an outlet into the Mediterranean Sea. Thereby, Britain's Mediterranean flank is secured. The Russians attempt to – sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, no. I was listening. Sorry.
1: Um, <laughs> sorry, I, did, attempts- I, did, I, did,
0: I didn't think I said anything. I was – uh, enjoying the the uh, enjoying the, oh, the oh, lecture oh, it's
1: nothing, sorry it's nothing to do with that i'm, I'm always very conscious of the fact <laughs> that i do tend to ramble on incessantly and i'm no, incessantly.
0: Enjoying it. please continue
1: <laughs> but uh, don't worry um so with afghanistan hmm. is another sort of key sphere um the british essentially and the russians create afghanistan as a buffer And of course, this isn't preferential to the Russians at all, because this means that um, the Russians have expanded into Central Asia. If they've taken over places like, oh, I don't know, Bukhara um, and Merv, they've been able to establish a front in Persia, which is a vulnerable front for the British Empire. Hmm. But in the graveyard of empires in Afghanistan, they've reached a fundamental roadblock, one that they will forever in their history be unable to tame, even with the Afghan-Soviet War in the 1980s final sphere of influence is, of course, in East Asia. And this is sort of fascinating in a way because um, Russia has almost every advantage in the long term. Britain is basically holding a very tentative position in China. Britain has established direct colonies, of course, in Malaysia and Hong Kong. And yet Britain is also seeing the rise of Japan, which you can say is an unexpected uh, unexpected result of an attempt to establish another colonial sphere of influence. When they meet the Japanese, the Japanese are effectively able to take that experience, that brief flirtation with colonialism, and they're able to rebound and adopt the principles of their would-be um, conquerors. And as we see in World War 2 they're able to effectively deliver Britain one of its uh, final death blows in terms of the end of empire. But, Britain is essentially able, through the Russo-Japanese War, to wage a war on the Russians by proxy, using the Japanese. And with their alliance with the Japanese, Russia is kicked out of the hmm. of the Pacific as well, being able to establish a military presence and a naval presence in China, whereby they could have seriously checked British influence. So even though you're right in saying there's an immense vulnerability in this whole system, um, Britain is able to hold on to this sort of vast uh, imperial legacy, and it does so through Eduard um, uh, politicking. Um, Even in the case of the German naval arms buildup, uh, the Tirpitz Plan, establishing a large naval presence for Germany in the North Sea, from which it could basically extract concessions at any summit or any meeting between the great powers. The ultimate legacy of the Tirpitz Plan is a German colonial concession in Cameroon, and that's about it. Mm. Um, that's really all the Germans get out a result of the Tirpitz plan. They are unable to meet the British capacity for building ships. So really, the, the two major experiences which cause another great crisis of confidence within the empire, building upon the experience of the American Revolution, but also the internal inconsistencies of the empire itself throughout the 19th century, are the Second Boer War and the First World War. And I'll, I'll leave it there for now.
0: So it's, it seems to me that come, if we arrive at the point of sort of World War I, it's evident that the land powers can't be held down forever. And you, in your video, said that it was a mistake for Britain to become involved in a land war in Europe. Um, but it's, I, I suppose the people at the time felt they had little choice. Is that correct?
1: Um, and I, I, the reason I've never really believed that, and I believe it took a pretext like the invasion of Belgium in order to really get popular support behind the war, weirdly, in a similar sense, you can say Ukraine is mm-hmm. the modern example of this, where you see a larger power invading a smaller power um, and I do believe for better or worse, there was a genuine outpouring of support among the population for Ukraine on the back of course, you know a massive concerted propaganda campaign. Mm. Uh, I do believe that sentiment does exist, but I don't believe up until that point there was enough impetus um, even politically to be able to bring the various forces to war even though I recently published a video saying that all the forces were aligned to accept war by that point. It simply required a catalyst, and Belgium provided the very convenient catalyst for all of this. But for the other European powers, it represented an existential crisis. Hmm. France had not just an existential crisis, it could have resulted in the elimination of these various empires, and indeed it did. With France, say for example, France never got over the fact that she had become second fiddle, in Europe, compared to the Germans. Yeah. And so, if she was to be victorious in this war, it was about cutting Germany down to size and annexing the territories which had been ceded, uh, Alsace Lorraine in the uh, Franco Prussian War, and maybe even annexing territories in the Rhineland, which they would effectively do during the First World War. Um, for the Germans, This was about forever ending the possibility of a two-front invasion by the French and the Russians. And so for the Germans, they believed that they were facing an existential crisis. Indeed, Russia would invade Germany before German troops could be dispatched to confront them. With Austria... They believed that unless they had some sort of pretext to go after Serbia, that there would be some major ethnic uprising in their empire. And so for them, it was an existential crisis. Even for the Ottomans, the Ottomans believed that they could only unite the remnants of their empire together uh, with a pan-Turkish identity or even an Islamic identity to hold these various territories together. Britain, uniquely out of these various powers, was not facing an existential crisis. And I've always contended that had Britain stayed out of that conflict, which is very possible, um, before the, if, well, I won't go into that, it's a bit too complicated here, but had Britain been able to stay out and Britain just sat by and watched all these powers slugging it out that solves her problem <laughs> she has this she has this issue with main she has this issue sorry with I, maintaining I, the- I i sorry <laughs>
0: i really apologize but I, all i'm thinking is the eternal anglo mine clocks tick ticks over yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i apologize i couldn't help it so carry on
1: please no you're you're, you're exactly right yeah, this yeah. is the this is the epitome of perfidious yeah. albion why aren't we in um, charge
0: ah oh, that's the mistake we made
1: <laughs> <laughs> because um, there was a genuine fear hmm. among uh, figures in the foreign office that Russia was just going to defeat us in the long term because Russia has more people, Russia has yeah. more resources, Russia has a vast, continuous empire, and Russia has a massively expanding industrial base. It's often credited that Stalin was responsible for industrializing Russia, but no, Russia was already... In- beginning a rapid process of industrialization since the 1880s. Uh, and with the reforms of Stolipin and the period after the Russo-Japanese War, there was this genuine fear that the Russians could simply dictate uh, terms in the future. So the British had got everything they wanted when Germany and Austria went to war with Russia, because they were roughly evenly matched by the estimation of people in the Foreign Office then. And a long protracted conflict would simply mean that the British could dictate terms at a later date. And again, emblemizing this idea of perfidious Albion, uh, they could support Russia and France in the short term, kind of like we see in the War of Spanish Succession. But if the French and the Russians are doing too well, they simply just pull out their support and allow the conflict to continue. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but of course, this mentality was lost. And um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And I think the Boer War and the reason for Britain to and to the cause in Ireland and the Britain to declare war in 1914 are inextricably linked because the Boer War, Represented, you can say, a military calamity in a sense um, for the British Empire. The British had already forced many Boer um, Africa afrikaans speaking settlers in the Cape Colony uh, to emigrate. This is the Great Trek, and they mm-hmm. go off and they formed the uh, uh, the Boer republics, Orange and um, Transvaal. However, it transpires in the late 19th century, and again, another great British catastrophe, the Anglo-Zulu War, and to a lesser extent, the First Burr War, so problems are endemic for Britain within this region, that the Transvaal has massive supplies of gold, which again, Economic exploitation and confirming Britain's supremacy in the region. And there are many attempts to contrive such a conflict there as the Jameson Raid. Um, Cecil Road has uh, Cecil Rhodes has an active interest in perpetuating conflict in this region. Starting really as a local conflict between the local British administration there, it becomes a conflict in which the British government, the, the central British government, is directly involved. And in order to fully subdue the Burrs, it requires Population internment, extreme measures in order to stop a protracted guerrilla campaign. So after 1902, it is clear that Britain is technically victorious and Britain will be able to contrive the Union of South Africa a few years later. But in a sense, Britain is unable to win a very minor colonial war on Mm. a very distant front against a. Compared to Britain, there is no competition between Transvaal and yet it is proven that protracted resistance um, is enough to basically undermine the British Empire and the whole British settlement within South Africa. It is the same figures such as Lord Milner who arise out of this experience in the Boer War, who are now advocating for more integration. You can say building a large uh, pool of manpower, as as you refer to regarding one of these crises, the British Empire, by uniting all of the white uh, Co-ethnics into a single block and creating, you can say, the something resembling a centralized government. Um, Essentially, creating a not just a British identity referring to the British Isles, but creating a universal. British identity which spans across the globe. Mm. Um, in many ways, you can say this is actually adopting elements of a German conception of nationalism, which represents uniting all the co-ethnics into a single Reich, mm. a, Reich a home in the Reich. Um, and This is the only way to prevent long-term calamity within the British Empire based on all the phobias, especially regarding Russia, um, which I've already pointed out. So this impetus exists where there needs to be a radical redefinition of what it essentially means to be British in the context of the empire um, in order for us to survive. Another approach is ending free trade. Free trade, as with the abolition of slavery, had been a very useful sort of um, economical and philosophical tool from which to perpetuate Britain's maritime dominance throughout um, the entirety of the world. But now... Britain had economic competitors in a way which was inconceivable earlier in the 19th century, namely Germany and the United States, both of whom have adopted protective tariffs, meaning their economic sectors, their industrial capacities are being protected in a way that Britain's aren't. Hmm. And so the resolution to this is well, we adopt elements from Germany and the United States, we adopt tariff reform. And of course, the knock on effect of tariff reform or imperial preference is that we can actually economically integrate the empire and become a, um, uh, 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 sorry, my, 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 the word is escaping me, but essentially an, an economic community, an economic mm. union, and of course, you know, yes, an economic block. Um, uh, and you know, reading Stalin, of course, and this actually perpetuates a lot of the thinking we're regarding the European Economic Community, later yeah. the European Union, is that in order to form a nation, one must form a coherent economic block, and therefore this is a fundamental stepping stone towards the realization of this new British federation or a global sense of a British identity. However, you have the stumbling block whereby this is not popular. This is not a popular decision within Britain because there is this assumption that this is going to hurt the poorest hardest by putting tariffs which are going to make the price of bread increase Mm -hmm. exponentially. And it's upon this platform that the Liberals were able to gain a decisive victory in the 1906 general election. So as we've seen in the Burr War, there is a faction growing, which steadily believes there needs to be reform of the British Empire, but it is the impulse of democracy itself which is frustrating that process, as indeed it will continually frustrate that process throughout the 20th century. Again, more internal inconsistencies speaking to the decentralized nature of the empire, and the fact there is no figurehead who is strong enough to be able to combine all of these forces and dictate a future for the British Empire. The the last figure who can really sort of assume this, and I I believe it would be an overreach to say he could have achieved what I'm stipulating is uh, Lord Salisbury, but he had been out of the political picture since 1902. Hmm. And so there is this idea of Britain needing to... Centralize. Britain needs a larger supply of manpower. Britain needs to successfully pacify its colonies, and this will require a redefinition of our imperial identity. And yet, the liberals also facing a crisis of their own, which is this crisis between the laissez faire. Economic policies in the 19th century and appealing to economic populism, wealth redistribution, statism, essentially. Mm. And so in 1909, Lloyd George inaugurates a very radical series of reforms, which are the first sort of concerted attempts at wealth redistribution. And in that process, it again attacks one of the fundamental pillars of the old British Empire, which is the power of the House of Lords. Lloyd George is able to face this threat down. But does so at huge a huge political cost, whereby the conservatives are basically now in a position to form a government whenever the liberal coalition between Labour and the Irish um, the Irish Home Rule Party um, collapses, which of course is a very sort of acutely sort of um, uh, weak position for the liberal government. The Conservatives have now come round to this cause, as I mentioned, of imperial consolidation and empire. And now we have the problem in Ireland compounding all of these things at the same time, i.e., the Irish are becoming restive. They're in a position where they can finally dictate Home Rule, and this is going to cause civil war because there are enough Ulster plantationists, there are enough Northern Irish Protestants who are going to resist this at all costs. And the British army, Will need to be sent in to impose this by force, mm. and the British army will not do this. So we have the risk of a mutiny, and this is already very apparent by 1914. Mm. So this is my fundamental understanding now as to why Britain went to war, which is the belief that a war against Germany would unite all of these factious elements within the British Empire and create the centralizing impetus to form a British Federation and to crush the sentiments of Irish nationalism forever. Mm-hmm. Essentially, as we have the Unionists and Conservative Party, the cause of Unionism will be saved by the conflict, and the cause of Empire will be saved by the conflict. They could not reckon on the fact that the First World War would, in fact, invalidate all of these things.
0: <laughs> yes, because uh, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm no, I'm no great expert on the first world war or the second world war, because frankly we had to do them in school and they were just very depressing. You you just, I was so sick of hearing about trenches uh, by the time I left school that I was very turned off of history for many years actually until i started learning about roman military history and then it became very interesting again um so my my recollection of this is an understanding this is fairly dim but it seems to me from what i know that though britain was on the winning side in world war one it surely was some sort of unveiling moment where Okay. Yes, we won, but this is war going forward, and Britain isn't very well equipped for it.
1: Yes, you're 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 fundamentally correct. And just on a side note, regarding your experience in school, uh, my personal theory is that this subject should be banned yes. <laughs> from being taught at school, especially the causes. <laughs> Of uh, World War One because they are so uh, they are distilled in such simplistic terms as to give every schoolboy or girl the uh, the com- a complete misapprehension uh, regarding this topic to the point that it's dangerous.
0: Just a quick aside on that. I I can understand why they do it because they want to make you feel like you don't want to go to war because you don't want to go to war, especially in the modern era. Um, but it does make the subject really drag on and it's all the same it's people suffering in trenches and so yes okay i i appreciate that's very bad but there was more to history than this um but anyway sorry carry on
1: well no back to your your point regarding the fact that britain technically won but was in a weakened position afterwards that that's exactly the point because britain is an empire of commerce it's an empire of finance and creating a British land military tradition on par with Europe, basically out of thin air, uh, bankrupted us, mm. to be quite frank. Not only did it financially bankrupt us, but it resulted in the deaths of at least half a million men and many more being injured, which is significantly higher than our losses in the Second World War or really any other conflict to date. And um, this, in a way, acts as the first major stage for us being economically supplanted by the United States, mm. not militarily, not in terms of naval power or influence, but by the end of 1916, when there was essentially a, a coup within the Liberal government where Lloyd George splits uh, the government and joins with the Conservatives and forces through things like uh, military conscription, which again, completely anathema to the whole British psyche. Yeah. In fact, one of, the, one of the ways that the Conservative government, just two years before, the Conservative government had tried to defeat the Liberals, was arguing that Britain had no history of a standing army. And so enforcing Irish home rule at the point of a sword would essentially be anathema, not only to the legal system at the time, but to Britain's traditions. And two years, we're throwing all of that out. Um, by creating a, a fundamentally different relationship between the British state and its subjects, and of course this is financially ruinous to us. And to make matters worse, we're not actually getting anywhere. Throughout the nineteen throughout 1916, we're throwing everything we can against Fortress Germany, and the fortress still stands and so mm. Americans are now in a position by 1916 where they could basically end the war whenever they wanted because we are economically dependent on them yeah. but instead they decide to join the conflict and after the conflict several things have uh, transpired as a result of this yes we've defeated germany but we're also in a position where okay fundamentally we're a trading power mm. so we have no interest in economic we have no interest in economically destroying all of these various territories which have arisen out of the conflict. Another another thing has made this situation even more untenable. We have a communist revolution in Russia, Mm -hmm. who is potentially one of our greatest trading partners, the Soviet Union. And it was such a, a crisis within the British government that Lloyd George almost immediately um, began measures to try and create some sort of economic conduit between the Soviets and Britain. And of course, we would we were one of the first governments to recognize them long before the United States recognized the Soviet Union. So economically within Europe, we've created this untenable situation. The German economy has collapsed. The Austro-Hungarian economy has... The entire infrastructure of, of Central Europe has basically just been deleted mm-hmm. as a result of this conflict. And so we have lost so much in the way of what was the impetus behind expanding into China, for example. It was creating consumers. It was creating markets for exploitation. All of that is gone. And we're trying to restrict the annexationist impulse of the French to take more and more lands from Germany, to create a higher indemnity on Germans, to create permanent states of um, zones of occupation, while the Americans... Having arrived and proclaimed the whole principle of self-determination, have very quickly abdicated that position to the British and the French. So more, more internal inconsistencies. Yeah. Uh, and, and probably the most uh, important regarding what I believe was the major reason for us getting a World War I, which is this idea of imperial federation, nothing did more to damage the idea of imperial federation in the First World War, because all of a sudden you have Anzac nationalism. Mm. When you have Australians being forced into a fruitless conflict against the Ottomans to conquer Constantinople through the Gallipoli campaign, the futility of the conflict creates a significant breach in the relationship between the Dominions and the mother country in terms of embroiling them in a conflict of which they have no direct concern. I mean, what was the direct sort of relationship between Germany and um, Australia? You know, the the Kaiser Wilhelm Islands, you know, uh, and the the Polynesian possessions of the German Empire, which, of course, were a great threat to Australia. I'm sure they were very concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... this is really important to to get across is that everything that britain had hoped to gain by getting into the first world war has rebounded on them mm. with with a severe effect they have it should be pointed out gained territories as per the war yeah they've yeah they they've gained influence in the middle east through the uh, the sykes picot agreement which carved out palestine and uh, Iraq into a British zone, and Syria and Lebanon into a French zone. Uh, They've gained Germany, East Africa, uh, which of course is uh, modern-day Tanzania. Uh, But really, in terms of the ultimate losses for the British Empire, uh, these were not in any way sufficient to offset uh, the disaster, uh, which was uh, Britain's involvement in this conflict.
0: And it, it seems that these things feel ephemeral right? Like British occupation of Palestine and Iraq didn't feel like it was going to be a long term thing. It it seems that we must have known that at the time, that we weren't going to be able to simply defend these. If there was a concerted invasion from somewhere, they were just going to take it.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, and this this raises a fundamentally important point, which is The drive towards avoiding a future conflict when Britain and France take control of these territories, and it should also be noted that South Africa takes control of German Southwest Africa, which is modern day Namibia. um, They are not holding them as colonies, they are holding them as mandates. Hmm. They are holding them essentially as pro tem governments, which are ultimately going to have their own settlement decided at a later date through international arbitration, which is the process of the League of Nations. So peace is essentially being advocated against the policy of annexation for annexation's sake. And so these territories are in a perpetual interim, effectively. And because of this, because Britain's power is so predicated on its economic strength, Britain begins retreating in various areas, notably in China, where there's a official flag lowering ceremony in one of their provinces in Shandong, which is going to be endemic of all of Britain's sort of gradual imperial losses throughout this entire Mm. time. Um, It is really you can say you know appeasement is associated with Neville Chamberlain, but the process process of appeasement begins in the 1920s, and combined to all of this, even though the American um, entry into world war one was a bit of an anti-climax combined to this you now have the notion of self-determination of nations yes within britain of course you have democracy which is confirmed you have the suffrage you have a enfranchisement of women and by 1928 you basically have universal male and female suffrage
0: yes all sorts of mistakes were made
1: (laughs) And uh, and India is demanding these. Uh, India is demanding these things as well. Uh, the Indian National Congress is beginning there. Uh, you know, we have the the famous uh, massacre of Amritsar uh, just after World War One, which is touted essentially as the the defining moment of the Indian independence movement. Um, and we have uh, the rise of Gandhi, and mm-hmm. we have nonviolent resistance, and all of these. Uh, would be sort of colonial classes, these uh, responsible governing classes, which the British could in theory defer their rule over, which is the case with China. So if you want to compound a crisis of confidence, it should be obvious that World War One, in addition to all, all of these things which are obvious before World War One, is a galvanizing moment in terms of brewing this this complete lack of confidence in Britain, uh, Britain's enduring sort of power as a imperial and maritime power. Instead, it has basically assumed this unhappy position as the enforcer of global peace via the League of Nations. But as Britain retains its imperial vestige, its imperial power, other nations are willing to exploit this contradiction between Britain's nominal role as enforcer of basically self-determination and international peace, and at the same time holds the world's largest empire. The two empires that are able to very effectively exploit this and showcase the contradiction are Japan, when they invade Manchuria, Hmm. and Italy, when they invade Abyssinia.
0: And then, of course, we essentially arrive at World War II, and I think we can probably accept that Britain's empire is over very swiftly afterwards, even if the process of decolonization does take a few decades.
1: Yes, I mean, Britain essentially made a choice, a conscious choice in 1940, which was, if you continue the war, you will lose the British empire as a result of it. And Britain decided to continue the war for the loss of the British empire. And um, I mean, there are some people who say that you know Winston Churchill wasn't aware of exactly what the Americans were going to do in terms of their interest in dismantling the British Empire, but he must have known. He must have known. I mean, it's it's incredibly obvious at the time, and in hindsight, what the implications were going to be of perpetuating the, of perpetuating the conflict. And this also plays into something which may sound controversial uh, to people listening, but I believe it's completely borne out by the facts, is that America, obviously, at its inception, it began as a anti-colonialist project. It was attacking the whole notion of British subjugation of the colonies. America in the 1940s onwards was far more adamant in a position of anti-colonialism than it was anti-communism. Consistently, it would essentially undermine not just the British Empire, but the French and the Dutch empires, rather than undermine the potential spread of communism, uh, which is really quite marked. And the most obvious example here to bring up, rather than just becoming inundated with details, is the fact that the Americans expected... The British to repay their contributions um, in the war, whereas the Soviets were basically given a blank check. It's very
0: interesting, isn't it? Because it, <clears throat> for me, the way I look at this is about proximity. Uh, what what is the proximate gain for the United States and from Russia? Very little. So why would you care? But from Britain, they've already got a world trading empire that speaks English set up for you to inherit. So why would you not?
1: Exactly. Um, Britain during World War II, on the one hand, of course, we have the war itself, but really the the parallel conflict or rather resolution going on here is that Britain is acting as the midwife for the Mm. global empire, which is going to inherit it. And the British make plenty of mistakes to actually accelerate this process. I mean, on the one obvious note is that Canada is effectively effectively switches allegiance after the war from allegiance to the mother country as opposed to allegiance to America. That's a mm-hmm. fundamental split you see very early on from the 1940s um, to. The reforms of Trudeau Senior in the 1980s. But this also marks a split between Australia and even New Zealand towards Britain as well, because Britain is unable to defend their Eastern empire against the Japanese. Um, When Churchill says that Singapore was one of the worst defeats of the British empire in its history, he's not wrong. But the worst thing is that this was all entirely avoidable, had Britain had a stronger presence which to confront Japan's rapid conquest of all of these territories in the early months of 1942. Instead, where had all the aid been sent to? The Soviet Union. Yeah. So the British and the Americans, in their desire to defeat Germany, propped up the Soviet Union, thereby accelerating the demise when the Japanese um, continued their rapid series of conquests. And of course, the knock-on effect of the Japanese conquests and this whole idea of Asian self-determination that the Japanese were very um, disingenuously parroting was the knock-on effect in India. The idea that if India is going to remain joined to Britain for the course of the war, then independence needs to be promised at the end of it. So it is obvious by 1942 that the pursuit of total victory, unconditional surrender of the Axis powers means sacrificing the british empire
0: and as a final question um, <clears throat> is there a sense of inevitability about this since World war one um, are the are the people in charge of Britain essentially resigned to this future because you 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 present possible alternatives as if this wasn't physically inevitable, um, but did the people in charge think that?
1: Uh, Churchill certainly didn't think that. Um, after World War II, uh, we have a change in government. Churchill is replaced by Aptley. Uh, Churchill ostensibly, despite, again, revealed as opposed to stated preference, was for India remaining in the British Empire, but Labour was anxious to get rid of India as quickly as possible. Um, and this actually had a very practical reason in that there was civil war brewing in India. Mm. And if Britain were to stay in India longer, then Britain would have to be responsible for ending a civil war and for putting down various rebellions. Mm. Um, so it was a very cynical gesture of Britain to get out before. And inevitably we see the conflict between India and Pakistan, which in itself I, I need to point out is a consequence of um the knock-on effects of proximity towards Britain and democratic institutions and democratic Mm. aspirations which have been borne out. On the one hand, it's fascinating when I was looking into Pakistan, um, how you had figures like Syed Ahmed who were wanting to perpetuate the British Empire Because they believed the British Empire supporting a group of Muslim elites would actually prevent the domination of a Hindu democratic majority. Um, But of course, the Hindus were not going to tolerate that by the end of the Second World War. Um, So the process of independence made the process of partition inevitable in that sense. But we still see figures advocating, say, for example, for the independence of. British allied states in India, like the Maharaja in Hyderabad. Again, something which is rarely ever talked about, the fact that India basically annexed various regions that weren't part of the British held territories in order to create the modern borders of India, and indeed go to war with other colonial powers like Portugal in the 1960s. Um, And indeed, when we look at figures like Antony Eden and the Conservative government in the 1950s, there was a concerted effort to hold on to Suez. But it was the Americans pulling the rug from under this, which was the final um, declaration essentially to the world that the Americans were not prepared to tolerate the continuation of the British Empire. Because as I've said, anti-colonialism, was a priority over anti-communism. The Americans were prepared to risk colonial uprisings in the form of British Empire um, in the hope that they may gain potential spheres of influence out of it than they were prepared to allow the British to rule them themselves, which is um, quite remarkable. But there's a point you bring up regarding um, the whole inevitability of it. and I I would like to end by trying to come up with some sort of um, analogy for all of this. Uh, Oswald Spengler in his Decline of the West uh, talks about various iterations of civilization, Apollonian, Magian, Mm. and Faustian. His notion of the Faustian civilization is predicated upon the European aspiration towards universalism. The idea that European man has made a pact with the devil in terms of gaining ultimate knowledge. Um, in distinction with other civilizations. And thereby, it is this aspiration to exploration and universalism which characterizes Faustian man. To my mind, the British Empire is the most visible expression of the Faustian spirit, because it moves beyond these more localized concerns over ethnos and preservation Mm -hmm. of the homeland and mutual defense. And it instead becomes a project which is distinct from any practical goals of running an empire. and It is because of this whole idea of the Faustian spirit and this becoming enamoured with the various colonial peoples and becoming um, almost more invested in the periphery than in the centre, where you get the foremost expression of Faustian man. I can point to figures such as Gordon, Gordon, who is responsible for putting down the Taiping rebellion in China and then more willingly die in Sudan uh, to prevent essentially to ensure what the British have created there against mm. the uh, the fight of the mahdi um Lawrence of Arabia, uh, another very prominent figure uh who is willing to essentially defect from the British and go over to the cause of the um uh, the Sharif of mecca um and fight the cause of Arab nationalism, even if it contravenes the essence of the Sykes-Picot Agreement and what British interests in the region are. Um, And beyond that, going towards the cause of India, uh, I looked to someone like Louis Mountbatten, the man responsible for independence and partition, in the sense that even though partition actually suited British interests quite well, because it would prevent a strong united India going over and becoming a fellow traveler of the Soviet Union. Mm. Mountbatten naturally resisted the impulse towards partition because he was invested in the unity and the continuity of Indian civilization and the link between Muslims and Hindus there. So he was trying to bring about something that was impossible, and it was impossible because, ironically, of the legacy of the British Empire. And so in that sense, in terms of the British Empire... Creating these imperial subjects, which are in some way deracinated from the center, it is all the more remarkable. And another figure, which you might not think about when talking about this Faustian spirit, is uh, Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell's that's
0: that's an unexpected addition to the canon.
1: Enoch Powell's political experience comes from this tangible sense of loss because of the loss of India. He is enamored with Indian civilization and culture. He has taught himself to speak Urdu, which is the court Islamic language of Mm -hmm. the Indian Empire, the Mughals that preceded them, and then the lingua franca of Pakistan moving forward. However, he believes that India is best served by continual British subject, um, British subjecthood of the Indian settlement, of the Indian Raj. And Essentially, he is confronted by the process of independence, and it is the Faustian impulse to maintain these various disparate and uh, contrary alliances up uh, into the whole of the British Empire as representing this diverse amalgam. Represents the career of um, Enoch Powell, and you can say the transition from his imperial outlook to that of a little Englander towards the nineteen sixties, mm. and. It's Faustian in two respects. On the one hand, it is the aspiration of the Brit to become completely enamored in the cultures of the territories which are nominally subjugated, which, again, is is not just unique to the British, I need to emphasize. Orientalism had Mm. become a key feature of European civilization by the 18th century. I mean, Voltaire, one of the major innovations he adds to history is the fact that he's looking beyond knowledge of scripture he's looking beyond the history of europe and he's taken interest in places like china um so this faustian spirit of course which spengler talks about is endemic but in britain Mm -hmm. it reaches its apex the the
0: orientalism just a quick thing i mean this echoes alexander persianizing himself if that's the right term uh when he when he conquers the persian empire i mean this is not a new phenomenon is it
1: no you're 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 completely right and um this is historic um historically also this is the process of um creating a sort of hellenic universalism mm. yes there is a greek colonial strata on the top but essentially Greece has moved from being an ethnically confined region, albeit with the, with the with the colonies, and it has now become the world. It has a universalist conception, uh, ranging from Magna Graecia, mm. southern Italy, all the way to um, Menander on the on the uh, on the Ganges. And um, it is remarkable. Um, you know, what is the fate of the Greek Empire? It is fragmentation and division and the destruction of all of these territories to the point that there is no sovereign Greek state at all. Mm. Um, And of course, what is the ultimate end for the empire of Alexander? It acts as the midwife to Roman expansion in that region Mm. because the Greeks have already established a Greek Speaking upper echelon within places like Syria, within mm-hmm. places like Egypt, within places like Anatolia, and so the Romans, rather than forcing them to speak Latin, simply assimilate the Greek-speaking portion of that territory, and that becomes the Roman Eastern Empire, which will later become the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. But but the um, and and that remark is emphasis on the Faustian pact, which is not only Faustian man as represented in someone like Enoch Powell. But the fact that Britain has willingly made a pact with the devil, in this case, the United States, <laughs> um, in order to um, to win a conflict, but as a result of it is sacrifice the British Empire in the process.
0: Just to... Um... <clears throat> assuage the fears of any of our american listeners uh we we're speaking in a metaphorical sense from the perspective of british interests uh, america is not of course
1: literally the devil um, no I, I have not become um the grand ayatollah here
0: yes uh, I, I realize States. there are people who are, yeah there are people who are saying such things and i i don't agree with them i like america and i like americans but from the position of the british empire you can see how this plays out but um, right, am. Thank you so much for this conversation. I thought we were going to go going to go for an hour or so, but uh, I was really enjoying uh, the exploration into what happened. Frankly, so um, if people want to find you, I assume they can just look up your YouTube channel, Apostolic Majesty.
1: Yes, that's that's all you need to uh, really need to do. But I, I want to say, Carl, thank you uh, so much for having me on. In terms of these broader reflections, I'm only sort of coming. Almost belatedly, to an understanding of all of this myself. Mm. And of course, because the history of the British Empire is so diverse, it is also compartmentalized. I mean, mm. when you speak of the Roman Empire, it is a fixed historiography. You know, the, the fate of the Gallic or the Palmarine secessionist states is a story of the Roman Empire. But when you're doing the historiography of Britain, The history of Britain, you don't add equal weight to say, for example, the the colonies in Africa, do you, to the story of the British Empire. And it is because of the remarkable sort of, it is the uniqueness of the British Empire has meant that the British Empire is something other than the history of Britain itself, which I think also explains the fact that Britain could essentially surrender its empire in the way that it did. It was essentially an ornament in a way. And it was maintained by various aspects such as commercial dominance and the British um uh, the British Navy, the Royal Navy. But once all of these are gone, then the Empire is simply handed over mm-hmm. um to the new forces which itself created. And mm-hmm. I do mean that also in the sense of the United States. Um so you can spend so much time delving into the history of the British Empire and never once make any reference to domestic policies happening in Britain at the time. So thank you for uh, allowing me to to ramble on incessantly about this uh, topic. I've really enjoyed it.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me.